Hey, good morning, you guys. It's great to see you. Laytonville Church is flourishing with uh, virtual, virtual preaching, virtual pastoring. Great to see you guys today. We're going to be in Romans chapter 10 this morning. So find your way to Romans chapter 10. Um, let me pray with you for just a moment. And then we'll read a few of the first verses in this chapter together. O great Jehovah, God, who gave us life and breath this morning, you gave us food if we happen to eat our breakfast, you sustained us all the way to this meeting place together, dear God, you you hold the planets in their courses and you sustain all of the visible and invisible creation by your by your word and by your power and we thank you and we worship you lord how i pray lord that you would help each man and and woman and young person here today lord to to hear and listen carefully lord to really engage with your word your eternal word the word that that Christ preached when he came to the earth, that the apostles carried on and, and taught to us, Lord, help us to to know what the Lord Jesus said. Help us to know what you were revealed to us by the apostles and the prophets. God, please equip us for the works and for the understanding that is required of us in our day. God, I pray these things in Christ's great and precious name. Amen. Okay, Romans uh, chapter 10. I'm going to read just four verses here. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in in real basic summation here, Paul introduces this section as a prayer for the nation that he knows is lost. There, he's referring to a Israel who is lost. He wishes they were not lost. And he tells us why they're lost. He tells us the difference between their lostness and the saved of those who have come to saving faith in Christ. And it has to do with righteousness the key to the gospel, one of the massive keys of the gospel, is righteousness, or right and wrong. And most of the people of Israel have pursued righteousness incorrectly. How they have gone about trying to have it, they've done it wrong. And that's why they're lost. And the gospel message 
is the revelation of the Lord Jesus and before Him the prophets that predicted His coming. It's the revelation that, that prepared you and I to know what it is that God has required of men that we might properly hope in eternal life. Have a look for a moment at uh, Romans 9.18. We'll do just a little bit of review here as we're thinking about the Apostles' desire for Israel. Do just a little bit of a review. Verse 18 it's just a very astonishing verse. We, we've looked at it a couple times over the last uh, few months. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills. And whom he wills he hardens. Pretty astonishing verse there in the middle of Romans chapter 9. And if your heart... if if in your heart and soul you've come to believe and the Lord Jesus has declared that, that you are a sinner and you agree with the Lord Jesus, you understand and you know that you're a sinner and you've, you've repented of your sin, you've turned away from sin and you've, you've begun to trust in the Lord Jesus and begun to walk with Him, that's what a Christian is. Someone who's heard the preaching of Christ and turn from their sin and, and put their hope in Him. If you're a person like that, we want to ask the question, what is your responsibility to the lost? What is your responsibility to those who don't love Christ? Do you have any duty or responsibility to them? And the reason that this is a particularly important question in this section of the book of Romans is based on this verse and, and the teachings that go along with it here. At chapter 9 and verse 18, God hardens whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills. If he hardens whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills, what difference does it make what I do or what I think? And there are actually many people who who will follow that line of thinking. If God's going to have mercy on who He wills, well, fine, God, go ahead and have mercy on them. Or if He's going to harden whom He wills, okay, God, fine, have, have harden them and, and do what you're going to do to them, God. It, it leaves people in their own... In, in, in the privacy of their own wisdom and, and, and in the privacy or in the, in the reasoning powers of our own logic, we'll say, well, it's up to you, God. I don't have anything to do with it from here. That's a conclusion that many, many who come to understand the doctrine of election, and this is their response, thinking about it. But here as we read the Apostles' desire and prayer for lost Israel, will remember that he's speaking about Israel that he actually says early in chapter 9 is not true Israel. Chapter 9 verses 2 to 8 says that there are two Israels. There are two of them. There is an Israel of promise and then there is an Israel of uh, maybe we would just call it DNA. Strictly speaking relatives of, of Abraham and of the person who took the name Israel, 
that that's an Israel. And then there's another Israel, those who have believed and have the faith that Abraham had that it spoke spoke of in uh, in chapter four, for example, of of Romans. So there's a group of foretold ones, he says. And these are real Israel, true Israel. They've been foretold. Remember the very first one he he told us about is um, uh, Jacob. The foretold group and the group that is born out of the promise. God foretold them. They're they're birthed and they come into this world according to God's promise. And, And they're called God's children or the people of God's promise. Chapter 9, verse 8. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So in this case, he's giving us an example there. The child of Abraham, Isaac, firstborn of Abraham, Isaac. This is the one that is the child of promise, but the other child born to Abraham is not true Israel and a not true Israel. So, these children, if you browse your eyes down to verse 11, these children, it says, the children not yet being born, nor having done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. We in, in studying this chapter in some depth and looking at the breadth and depth of it, we see that election and these ones like Isaac and Jacob are for a purpose of God. They're for a purpose that He has before the children are born, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. God is about accomplishing a demonstration of His power and His authority and of His grace and mercy for His purposes when He does these things. So at verse 16, to to extend this thought and to keep thinking as, as this is unfolding, look at verse 16. It says, So then it is not of Him who wills, nor of Him who runs, which is your average person who is pursuing righteousness, who is pursuing entrance to to heaven someday, he said, it is not of him who wills or runs, in verse 16. But it is of what? It is of God who shows mercy. So what I want you to connect, the, the, the dots that I'd like you to put together here, because this, this is the point the scripture is making. True Israel beginning in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, true Israel is the fruit of God's mercy. You see how he said, it's it's not of him who wills or runs, but it is of God who has mercy. It's not a person's will or effort. It's of God's mercy. God has formed in the past, is presently forming, and will form true Israel. Those who have faith like Abraham... He is the one doing it according to His mercy. This is the driving characteristic 
of God in, in, in building a people according to his promise and according to his name. So God's mercy and his compassion in election are God's explanation of true Israel. What is true Israel? Where did they come from? Who, who are true believers in Christ? What is the true church? We, we come to learn that true Israel is, is the church. That the word church is actually a word um, that means congregation. Who is the congregation of God? Who is the family of God? Who are the people of God? They, they fall under the same rubric of understanding. How do we understand who the true Israel is? Well, it's those that God has promised. This is actually illustrated positively and negatively in um, Romans chapter 9. Isaac over Ishmael and then Jacob over Esau. Those, those are given as illustrations of what we're talking about here. As, as Paul explains why there is a true Israel, he uses um, the reality that Isaac is the one who receives the blessing and not Ishmael. He uses the reality that Jacob, although he's the younger, will have the, 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 the authority of the older. He will be the, 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 the heir of the rights of the firstborn. And then, really, one of the shocking illustrations, and, and this isn't just another illustration, and go with these two. So we have Isaac, and then we have Jacob, and then Pharaoh. And verse 17 is another example. Oh, th this one is a very strong negative example. Look at verse uh, 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, Pharaoh, and my name may be declared in all the earth. And, and if you don't know, or if you don't remember, this is the Pharaoh of the Exodus in the second book of the Old Testament. And the Pharaoh of the Exodus chose to do his will opposed to God's will. And the scriptures say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God could demonstrate his power and his glory in this Pharaoh. Very astonishing and, and, and difficult to, to accept idea unless it was written right there in the scriptures. But following that verse about hardening Pharaoh, verse 18 says, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills. In other words, he hardened him, he hardened Pharaoh. Therefore you ought to know that God has mercy on whom he wills. And whom he wills, he hardens. Romans 9 is surely one of the, one of the challenging chapters of the Bible when it comes to us understanding and getting our minds around God's election, God's mercy, God's hardening. John had a conversation, or actually John overheard a conversation in the Gospel of John chapter 3. Flip there for a second. He makes a similar recollection here. I believe it's it's written down this this conversation between the Lord Jesus and, and Nicodemus is written down in the Gospel of John because it's it seems most probable that John was there with him maybe in the corner of the room or outside the door or something like that so John was able to know what was discussed and this is what he recorded but look at verse 5 John chapter 3 verse 5 and this is he's he's speaking to Nicodemus who who knew that the Lord Jesus was 
a man who had come from God. And the Lord Jesus, early, very, almost immediately in their conversation, the Lord Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Or in other words, unless God does something to you from above, unless God acts upon you to change you and make you ready and able to live in a kingdom, it can't happen. So look how he explains it, just a tiny bit more. It's not deeply, deeply explained, but look at this here in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, meaning flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, or man, woman, young person in Laytonville, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Now, generally speaking here, when, when the Lord uses this phrase, the wind blows where it wishes, it's, it's a way of saying, you have nothing to do or say about what is blowing the wind. Where the wind came from and where it's going is not under your control, is it? Or in other words, going back into the language of Romans chapter 9, it is not of him who wills or runs, but what is it dependent on? What is salvation and hope of life dependent on? It is upon him who has mercy. Or, according to John, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus heard this, and Nicodemus' answer is really pretty pretty insightful. Nicodemus answered, and he said to him, How can these things be? Nicodemus is flabbergasted. Nicodemus does not understand. He, he, he's going to say here in a minute, well, how do you expect me to be born again? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? See, the, the words that explain the way to eternal life are indeed astonishing. They're hard to believe. They're difficult to understand. Nicodemus was no, uh, he was no bonehead. He was no knucklehead. He's actually a very, very successful, well-educated man. But when the Lord Jesus told him these things, he couldn't grasp it. He couldn't get it. So in Romans 9, back in Romans 9, 16, he says, It is not of him who wills or runs, but of God who has mercy. That is almost the identical kind of saying is what we read here in the book of John. It's the same truth. And as you and I come to a greater and greater understanding of what is being said, as the gospel is explained here in, in the book of Romans, you and I begin to realize with a greater and greater understanding, with a deeper and deeper insight, unless God had stirred our hearts, unless God had begun to draw our own hearts to Him, with a sense of our guilt and sin, with a sense of our need for His forgiveness, and with our sense of our need for righteousness and Him to literally bring us to His kingdom. And, and unless that happens, we have no hope. And when we begin to have that hope, we realize that He is the one who's been working in our hearts. He's been the one who's been drawing us to Himself with a growing and increasing faith in Him. And if He didn't do it, we would be lost not of him who wills or runs. You, if you tried this afternoon, I don't know how many times I've said this, but if you, if you went on a walk today and you were on your way to heaven, you would never get there. You don't know how to get there. You need God 
Father and the Son and Spirit to bring you to Himself in repentance and in faith. And He brings you. So the Apostles' teaching is actually simple. Romans chapter 9 is simple. You read this through and it's simple. The hard part is coming to grips with with the ramifications of this, coming to grips with, with the sovereignty of God who is so sovereign that He is the one who does the, the, the first work and the finishing work in the heart of men and women who would come to Him. Election is actually a simple scriptural truth that we are told reveals His glory, reveals God's glory. And listen to this. If, if election is something that, that causes you to begin to ponder and think about God's meanness, or if you begin to think that election is a mean thing for God to do, then I want to suggest to you that you have been coerced by a troublemaker. If you've begun to think that the God of election is mean, and that's not nice and it's not fair. You have you have been meddled with in your thinking. You have been coerced in your thinking. Just like the serpent in the garden who told Eve that God had ill motives. God God was being somehow unfair and unkind to her and telling her that she could not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She began to be suspicious of God's motives because the serpent suggested it to her. I want to say in the same way, when we begin to become skeptical of, or if you, if you are struggling with being skeptical of it, see the hand of the deceiver at work. The deceiver is at work undermining the word. The deceiver is at work undermining your confidence in what the word says. In Romans chapter 1, we see that man initially sees God's deity. They see and understand God's eternality. And this is, we'll look at the reference here in a second in Romans 1. And yet, although men see these things and although men know those things about God, they don't acknowledge Him as God, nor do they give Him thanks. In other words, men can come face to face with the greatness of of God with the glory of God and find their hearts embittered toward him and it comes from our sinful nature is God bad is God bad for letting those people in the beginning of Romans go to hell is that bad for God to do that look at it Romans chapter 1 we'll look at verses uh, 18 to 21. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. That means there is a witness of these things inside them that God has planted in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Men, men can see and men can understand and perceive these things about the Lord and, and still be ungrateful. Still not acknowledge Him. Still not seek Him for His righteousness. You remember in, in John chapter 3, the same conversation that the Lord is having with uh, Nicodemus. John chapter 3 and verse 18 it says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Unbelief is why men will be condemned. Unbelief. He who does not believe is condemned already. Is God mean? Is God bad for for condemning those who won't believe in and who won't trust in Christ. This is really what it boils down to. Is God merciless when He says He will condemn those who will not put their trust and their hope in Christ? Is God merciless? No, actually, while men are in that state, even today, yesterday, tomorrow, while men are in that state, while men are happy in their disagreement with God, God still holds out the gospel to them. God still holds out mercy to them. He, he holds out His patience to them. Chapter 9 closes. Chapter 9 ends by teaching us that Israel stumbled at the law. They stumbled, it says. Not seeking righteousness by faith. Let me see if we can read this together. Verse 30. What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. In other words, Israel has been standing under the law and serving under the law and striving under the law, but they haven't accomplished what it requires. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith. They didn't seek it by faith. Look at the next phrase. But as it were, by the works of the law, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And then there's a quote. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Israel stumbled at the stumbling stone. Now, if you will place in your mind the stumbling stone who is Christ... And the law, those two things are standing side by side. Israel wanted to be able to make themselves righteous by the law. According to the law, by keeping the law. In other words, I never murdered anybody. I never stole anything. I never blasphemed God. 
So this is their comfort. This is their confidence. This is how they're pursuing their righteousness. And they stumbled at the stumbling stone who is Christ. Christ is all of the perfection of God's holiness. And God's gospel says that Christ is the righteousness required. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is your hope for eternal life. If you insist on making your own righteousness, then you belittle God's Christ. You look down on God's Christ by making your own righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. But Israel stumbled at the stumbling stone. In 933, uh, the... Uh, the word offense is the word scandalou in, in Greek. Or scandalous is our English word. The stumbling stone is a scandal to the man who would make his own righteousness according to the law. So let me explain this to you just for a moment so you can get this. Let me start doing that by asking you a question. Why do you get offended? Why are, are people typically offended? Well, very often it's when someone presumes to teach us something that we assume we already know and it offends us. What, you're going you're gonna to teach me how to run the vacuum cleaner? You're going to... Teach me how to adjust the bandsaw in the mill. You're going to teach me how to weld the frame on the car. We, we're offended when somebody presumes to teach us when we assume we already know it. Or sometimes somebody will expose us. Somebody will tell a friend or just say out loud to us how we have fallen short in some way. There, we, we will be exposed in some kind of wrong that we've done and it is offensive to us because it's demeaning to us. It lowers or threatens to lower our reputation or our status. This is offensive to us. So when we're thinking about those who pursued righteousness by the law and they're stumbling at Christ, stumbling at the rock of offense, stumbling at the scandal, what they're being told is this. Your righteousness is pathetic. You are pursuing all of your righteousnesses and it's, it's, it's the, 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 the formula for the Jews' righteousness is when they go to church, how often they go to church, how they tithe, how they speak. All of their regulations are their righteousness. And God looks at those righteousness and he says, your righteousness is as filthy rags and that is offensive to them. Because they're like, who, who pursues righteousness like us? And you're saying our righteousness is as filthy rags? Who gives you the right to say that? They are scandalized by the Lord Jesus. See, the Lord Jesus is your hope for righteousness and He was their hope for righteousness. And when they hear that, it offended them. When they heard that, it was scandalous to them. Will you pursue the righteousness of Christ? Will you give glory to God and praise God that Christ is 100% of your hope and righteousness? Paul's 
lamentation at the beginning of chapter 10 closes and, and, and leaves us knowing that the electing God saves whosoever that believes. Look at how chapter 9 ends. I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes, God will save while placing a stumbling stone in the way. This is an amazing thing. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone. Now that's not hard to understand. But God lays in Zion a stumbling stone. God sets the stone in the path where men may stumble. Paul laments their lostness. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. He laments that they're lost. And he still loves them. And yet, he knows they have stumbled. He knows they have stumbled. You, you remember in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the cross of Christ is called foolishness and a stumbling block. It's the same truth that, that Paul taught to the church in Corinth. The cross, foolishness, it's actually foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling stone to the Jews. Christ is offensive. The message of the gospel is offensive. It is scandalous. But Paul laments for them. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, he says. The Jews that he longs for those who have stumbled at Christ, at the cross of Christ. Are they elect? Are they elect? This is why this is a very curious teaching that is so clarified here in Romans. Are they elect? Are they elect? What do you think about the, the Jews or about the people in Laytonville or California or South Carolina who mock and despise God's offer of atonement? What do you think about them? And who take offense at God's charge of condemnation? What do you think about those people who say, Man, you, you, you gospel preacher, you Christian who say that God will only save the elect, God will only save the Christians, and are, are you just a high and mighty self-righteous bunch of Christians is that what you are that's what people think about you and I when we try to explain the gospel to many of them does Paul say to the Israelites who have stumbled at the stumbling stone does he say well I guess God didn't choose them I guess God's not going to save them do you think God knows who he's going to save and who he's not going to save? Do you think he does? Please say yes. You, you have to know that before the foundations of the world you were foreknown and predestined. That, that is what predestination means. That's what election means. Don't make new definitions for it. But what did Paul say and what did Paul think? Does the teaching of election and mercy and hardening 
offend you. And when you think about the question, are men really at the mercy of God's election and mercy? Are men really at the mercy of God's election and mercy? You have to say yes. If you understand what we've been reading in the book of Romans, you have to say yes. We even ran into it in a very, very heavy fashion in chapter 8, not to mention chapter 9. Those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, these he called. Those he called, these he also justified. Those he justified, these he glorified. That's in chapter 8. Amazing teaching in the Bible. Men really are at the mercy of God's election and mercy. And in Paul's lament for the lost, as Paul laments and truly grieves for his brethren, according to the flesh, Israel, there is hope. And this is the important message for you and I as we're trying to get our minds around these teachings. Nine close saying, whoever believes in the stumbling stone will not be put to shame. Do you think do you think that this offer of faith seems counter to election? Does that seem that these two things are opposed to one another? Does the offer of belief for whoever believes does that seem counter to election? And do you wonder and have you wondered if God wanted to invite people to forgiveness and eternal life, couldn't he have done so without a stumbling stone? Do you wonder that? You wonder why there was a stumbling stone in the first place. Doesn't the existence of a stumbling stone make entrance into the kingdom difficult? Think about that. Think about that. Romans 9, 18-21 Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? I'm asking you this question in my own words here this morning, but I'm just reading to you in Romans 9 that this is not an unasked question. It's a logical question to the Gospel of Romans in chapter 9. This is a logical question. Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? If he hardens whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills, how can anybody be held to blame? But indeed, O oh man, this is the answer of the Bible, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? What is the thing formed, my friends? It's you. You are the thing formed. All mankind are the thing formed. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter, he answers, have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Gospel hope. Gospel hope is never universalism. Gospel hope is never everybody in the world is going to be saved. It never is. But there is a stumbling stone. And if you put your faith in Christ, the stumbling stone, the Savior from God's wrath will save you and grant you the righteousness of God Himself. Maybe you've wondered, maybe you ask, why doesn't God just save everyone? 
I do think that maybe sometimes you would wonder that for a moment or two in the very same section that we just finished reading at verse 22. It says, what if, Romans 9:22. what if God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, what if he endured with much long suffering vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God made those things for that reason? And that he, God, and that God might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. What if God did that? What if he has vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath so the two groups of vessels can look upon one another and, and have a picture of God's glory? Even us whom he has called vessels of glory. Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, listen carefully here as, we, as I bring this to a conclusion, this, this point here. The rules and laws of eternity and eternal life and God's kingdom the principles of it, the realities of it, existed before you did. They existed before America did. They existed before Babylon did. They existed before Egypt did. What we read when we read the Word of God in this special revelation is indeed a revelation brought to men so that we can peek in and know what has been made known to us. We can't revise it we don't come to God's word and his revelation about these things and, and snip out or blot out the bits that we find hard to understand or offensive to us. We come to this word to know his will. We come to this word to know his person, to know his ways. And not to make a God of our image. We don't come to this word and then reform it so that it suits us. And our ways. If you haven't ever read or seen the verse in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, you can look at it now. And if you know it, this is a great place to remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord. He is the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed the things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are secret things that God has chosen not to reveal to us. But there are things God has chosen to reveal to us. So what does Paul teach you and I to think about those who have stumbled at the stumbling stone? What does Paul teach us to think about those to even wonder, maybe God has hardened those Jews. Maybe God has hardened your neighbor. Or maybe even your child. What, what has Paul taught us to think about this? Romans 10.1 Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. This is so... Amazing that Paul does not despise the unbelieving Israelite. He doesn't despise them. He doesn't hate them. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, oh well, I guess God hardened them. These ones that Paul is praying about, they had done him much harm and persecution. They'd beaten him and hurt him. And yet, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He has a heart similar to the Lord Jesus who hanging from the cross he says, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. And the Lord Jesus 
intercedes for the sinners who put him on the cross to even kill him. 1 Timothy 1.15 is an interesting uh, little snapshot into Paul's understanding of himself. Look at 1 Timothy 1.15 real briefly with me. He says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I received mercy. Paul says, I received mercy. A sinner can receive mercy. Paul was really a horrible man. Before he came to Christ, there's a very good chance you wouldn't have liked him. He was a very, very stern he hated the Christians. He was going after them with letters to arrest them and put them in jail. You just might not have liked him. You might have liked him. You, you might have been fine with him. For this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You can look at the life of Paul and his harshness towards God's people, his meanness toward God's people. And so when Paul says at 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. In some ways, he knows that Israel is exactly like he was. He knows that they are, in a sense, trapped by their own sinful nature, their own sinful condition. They follow the instincts of their hearts. They follow their sinful desires. Do you see yourself like that? Is, is this what you were saved from? Do you see God's hand of mercy that saved you although you were a sinner? And if that is so, then can you look on your neighbor and on the unsaved that you know, knowing that God has elected whom He's going to elect? But can you know that these are people like you? Do you believe that? That they're people like you? Do you know you're a sinner? And if God were to put you in hell forever, you would deserve it? No sinners deserve eternal life. All sinners deserve condemnation. The offer of Christ in righteousness is mercy. It is pure mercy. Paul prays with a longing heart, knowing what he has just taught us about election. Paul knows even more about election than what we just read. He knows even more about hardening than what we just read. What does he do? He prays for the lost. He longs for their salvation. Could you pray, maybe... Something like what Paul said. Could you pray, Lord, choose them? Can you pray that? I think you could. You could say, oh God, save them. Save them, Lord. So many won't pray for the lost because they think, well, God has already chosen who, who He wants to. And He has. But that doesn't mean you and I shouldn't intercede and long for their salvation and pray for their salvation. You don't know who He's going to save. 
hear the wisdom of God's truth revealed just in this simple line here. Paul is longing for their salvation, although he knows. The great apostle knows what you and I just read about election and hardening. Maybe you'll say, oh, I don't know if the Father has given them to Christ. John 6, 37. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's another passage about election, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Nobody who comes to Christ for eternal life is going to be cast away. And you could teach that. And it is not a contradiction to God's election. None who come to Him will be cast out. Could you pray, Lord, give them to Christ. Can the ones you are concerned about, a spouse, a grandchild, a neighbor, a mean scoundrel of a person that you know, can, can you pray, God, give them to Christ. Give them repentance, Lord. Can you pray that? Our Lord is called the Lord of the Harvest in Matthew 9.35. The Lord Jesus, of course, understands election and hardening and mercy more than even Paul. Of course the Lord Jesus knows this, but listen to this verse in Matthew 9.35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Can you pray, Lord, send laborers? Send multiple Christians to my son's workplace. Send multiple Christians into, into my children's lives, into my son's life. Lord, give me boldness and full equipage so that I can speak with the words of Christ to the lost, Lord. Can you pray that? Don't not pray for the lost. Don't not long for the salvation of the lost because you believe election. The Bible teaches election. The Bible teaches for you to pray to the Lord to send out labors into the harvest. Romans chapter 10 at verse 13. We'll get to this in more depth in coming days. But... This teaching is actually very much emphasized right here in Romans chapter 10. Right on the heels of, of these great, amazing passages about God's election and calling. Chapter 10 verse 13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. 
They, they have to have a preacher. Our churches should be sending out preachers. Our congregations should be sending out and equipping one another to know how to share their faith and to preach the gospel. You know, Paul here, he's saying that he has prayed for Israel who is not yet saved. He has already distinguished between the true Israel and a false Israel, but he's praying for them that they might be the true Israel. He loves them. He loves these people. Oh, I pray that you would ask the Lord to give you a heart that loves the lost and that you wouldn't despise the lost and you wouldn't be mad and antagonistic to the lost. I'm so glad that while Paul has taught us these, these words and these ideas that help us understand election, help us understand God's promises and, and how he has ordained and hardened. I'm grateful that he taught us that this is something that he does for his glory, his own glory. It brings glory to him when he takes the younger and makes him the ruler. It brings glory to him. In a way, what God does and, and, and how He does these things, in a way, it's none of our business. Because God does what He wants. God does according to His will. He has mercy on whom He wills. Have you experienced a shade of His mercy this morning? This week? When is the first time you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus with some affection in your heart, with some belief? Did you recognize that as a demonstration of God's mercy to you? You should. You should know that this was His mercy to you. And you should thank Him for it. You should praise Him for it. And you should be encouraged to pray. You should be encouraged to pray for the lost. Not throw up your hands and say, well, God's going to save whom He's going to save. We will never do that. We do not do that. That is not what the Lord Jesus did. That is not what Paul has done. So pray for them because they must hear the gospel. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. They must come to repentance and faith in Christ or they will not and cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they say, how can this be? Pray for them. Pray that the Spirit would give understanding. Pray that the Spirit would give you understanding and perseverance in prayer for the lost. As, as God can save someone like Paul, a scoundrel, and a murderer like Paul, as God can save a man like that, God can save the worst person you have encountered yet. He offers them repentance of sin, and He offers them faith in Christ, and He offers them righteousness, 100% Christ's righteousness. I hope that you can take these words to heart and really give this some meditation. It's a great passage for us. A lot of things here to think about for us today. Let me just close with you in prayer and I just hope you guys have a great rest of the afternoon.
Oh God of heaven, how we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the sweet patience and love of the apostle who longs for the salvation of the lost without thinking for a minute that it is in somehow or in some way opposed or, or counter to your electing love and mercy, God. Oh Lord, I pray that you would make us bold in our faith and that you would equip us and make us strong according to your word, Lord. Thank you for the saints in Laytonville, Lord. I pray you would encourage them. I pray you would strengthen them. And I pray that you would give them a clear witness of your great grace and offer of life, Lord. I pray these things in Christ's great name. Amen. All right, you guys. I hope you have a great afternoon. I'll see you when I can. Bye-bye.